0: I, of course, have some thoughts on this Buffalo Bills player who collapsed on the field during a game. The New York Times has some terrible advice for you for the new year, but let's start with a new tradition for this year on the Corey Truax Show. This is the best Call it a resolution. Don't even call it a promise, but I think I have an idea that I want to use to start all 52 episodes of The Corey Truax Show in 2023. I will tell you about it in just a moment. Welcome to The True Act Show on His Radio Talk and wherever you find podcasts. Amongst many other things, I get to serve the incredible people of Beachwood Church. Beachwood Church meets at 1030 on Sunday mornings in Greenville. You're invited. It's a new year. If you've been without a church home for a while, jump on in. We'd love to have you. We're coming down to the end of an epic series in the book of Revelation. You can find a lot of those sermons out on Spotify. Me and my bride listened to one of those sermons on the way back from the beach this week. And it is a a really good triumphant look at the, the end of all things. And so go sh- listen to those sermons. We'd love to have you out at Beachwood Church. Before that, uh, what was that, Tuesday? Probably when we were driving back Monday, listening to the Beachwood sermon. On Sunday morning, we gathered with her family in the living room of a beach house and watched what is, I guess that would be her uncle by uncle by marriage, um, watched his sermon at his church up in Roebuck, South Carolina, and He has had the idea to do something I think is ambitious because of the attention span of Americans, but is not technically ambitious when you think of the context of what people have time to do. He is ambitiously trying to lead his church through reading through the Bible in a year, but keyword here, chronologically, reading it in the order in which we, best we can tell, those events took place. I have a chronological Bible. It's called Reese's Chronological Bible, one of my favorite gifts I ever got. My big brother got it for me close to 20 years ago now. I'm looking at it on my shelf as we speak, the Reese Chronological Bible. There's lots of them out there. They're very insightful. They'll show you things. If, if you read the Bible in order of events, you will learn a lot that there are, in the Kings and Chronicles, there are events happening in other books of the Bible while Kings and Chronicles is being written, you'll learn the relationship between things like Ezra and Nehemiah and how some of the prophets were concurrent in the Old Testament. They were working at the same time, but in different places. It brings the Bible to life in a whole new way. I, I think reading the Bible chronologically is a really good idea. So when I say it's ambitious, I mean, it's a lot of reading. It's way more reading than most Americans do. That doesn't mean you don't have the time to do it. I'm also not challenging you to read the Bible chronologically this year. Here's all I'm telling you. As that idea ruminated, as I ruminated on that on that idea, I should say, I thought about how on the show, you know it's it's changed over the years. I'm a lot less into politics, a lot more into culture. You know, we're the place that doesn't talk about people or events. We're mostly talking about ideas. And we want those ideas to be shaped by scripture, at least as it stands. I want to start all 52 weeks of the show this year, not all of the episode, but I want to start every episode with some thoughts from whatever we would have read the previous seven days. So if we were reading the Bible chronologically in 2023, in the first seven days, you would read Genesis 1 through 11 and Job 1 through 16. Like, did you even know that? Did you know Job? is maybe the oldest book in the Bible. If it's not the oldest book in terms of when it was written, it is the second oldest book besides Genesis. That Job is a figure of antiquity before, likely before. Actually, I'm going to say it. Before we ever get to Abraham, there was a guy named Job somewhere, and his entire story is out there. So that's what you would have read thus far. And of course, because it's a lot of content, I could only do an overview, but this is what I'm committing to you. For 2023, it might change. You know, I reserve the right to preempt that content in case something crazy in the world happens. But I think I'm going to start every show this year with, hey, I've been trying to read through the Bible chronologically, and if I was succeeded that year, uh, see, that week, in the previous seven days, we would have read this, and so here's some thoughts I have from it. So, here we go. Week one. If you would have been reading through the Bible chronologically, trying to get it done in a year, Genesis 1-11 through and Job 1-16. through I'll talk about Job next week. I want to talk about Genesis right now. Going back to Genesis regularly is a fantastic idea. Some of you do not think it is an historic book. You don't think, or at least you don't think the first 11 chapters are. You're not sure about how much history Moses, the writer of Genesis, is trying to tell you. I know people that I respect and admire, guys at like the Bible Project. Uh, was that Tim Mackey? I think his name was Tim Mackey and John Collins. Smart dudes. I'm basically positive they don't think that they don't think there is such thing as an Adam and Eve and Noah, a Noah a a true a real ta- like a historic tower of Babel they don't think there's a, a global flood or at least the understanding of a global flood I'm muddy on some of these things whereas I do I do think they're historic figures there is like for example with the flood I don't know if it was global I mean what is what does Moses know of the globe when he's writing it I don't even know if he was trying to tell us that that's a big a big part of reading Genesis. What was the purpose of it? Was was Moses trying to give you a history of the planet, or was he trying to give a people group that just left Egypt and had lost their history, was he trying to give them an origin story of where they came from and the God they serve? By the way, it's the latter. Moses is trying to give an origin story to the God they serve. And so when guys like Ken Ham come along with answers in Genesis and say, no, Genesis was trying to give you a biological, geological lesson about the origins of the planet, It might have some implications. It probably does have some implications for that, but that's not its purpose. Its purpose was to tell God's people, where did we come from? Where is our origin story? And so, going back to Genesis is a great idea because even if it's not historic, that tells you even more that the writer of it, Moses, wanted you to meditate on it about the meaning of life, what it means to be human, and what it means to be human in relation to the God who made us. We are meant to come back to it over and over and ask it again and again, what are you trying to tell me about this world, what went wrong in it, my role in it, and what God is doing in it all? We are meant to go back to it over and over. I listened to, I didn't read, listened to the first 11 chapters again over a period of two drives. And so let me give you some thoughts I had just off the top of my head if you read back through genesis you might come to these as well just in the first phrase there's so much impact in the beginning god created now we can stop right there for a second cuz you know we we remember the kjv that it's he made the earth uh, in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth we we read it as he made the immaterial world the spiritual world and the heavens and the earth he made the material world That's not really what it means. In the beginning, it just means God made the skies and God made the dust, the dirt. God made sky and dirt. But if we just stop at created, that's a powerful thing that God is creative. Telling us that you musicians out there, you artists out there, you are acting out the image of God in your art. When you play your music, when you draw, when you sketch, when you, for those of you who do artistic dancing, not the raunchy stuff, God is creative. And when you cultivate and create, you are joining in one of the images of God. That it's beautiful that He's creative. You look around the world that He made, that He continually called good, and you can see He was a He is a supremely creative being. It's not drab here. In just those first few words, "In the beginning, God created," we see a God who is the sovereign owner of all things. I won't belabor the joke. That's what we say when someone is. Creator of something that if they brought it into the world, they can take it out. In the beginning, God created the skies and the land, and then we read on. There was sun, moon, stars, animals, fish, uh, birds, the all of the full fo- like all the stuff. The what am I thinking of? The words not foliage, the shrubbery and things, trees, grass, all that. He made it all, and if he made it all, it belongs to him. Even going to the sixth day and making you, because he made you, you belong to him by right of creation. In just the first, whatever that is, six or seven words, in the begin, in the beginning, God created. Just in those first five words, there's so much power to dwell on. He's artistic. He's sovereign over everything. As you continue reading in Genesis, you find another important principle for all of our lives, that things, that the nature of things is naturally chaotic. Even before a sinful world, the picture we're given in the creation narrative is the spirit hovered over the face of the waters. And in the original language, you can even get some translations like this. It's more like the chaos waters. Like, there was there was waste and want. There was no order to things. But God comes and brings the order to madness and chaos without God. We just learn from the, the opening narrative – Without God, the world is mad. The world is chaotic. You might right now look at the world in which you live in Western civilization, a a civilization that is confused about fundamental truths, and say, it is madness out here. It is chaotic out here. And we can look back at Genesis and go, of course it is. We're looking at going on 70 years of a Western world who looked at the God of all things, the maker of all things, and said, we're good. We don't need you. We've graduated beyond you. Our thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Our ways are higher than your ways. You are antiquated. We're going to do it our own way. And that will ultimately lead to the world you're looking at right now. It will lead to confusion over fundamental things like man and woman. It will lead to the the level of disinterest in human life because to as we drift from Genesis, as we drift from God's way, we don't even see human life as made in the image of God. And so we'll snuff it out in terrible violence. We, we can in just the early part. Oh, that's another good takeaway. I'll probably talk about it a little bit more later in the show in another context. But there is at least some worldviews out there that seem to think the world left to its own devices and humanity left to its own devices is good and ordered and decent. And what our real problem is, is fill in the blank. It's inequality. It's ethnic prejudice. There are external things that break things. But if everyone was just in their natural state, in the natural state the world is good. The world is easily and, hu- and easy and humans are good. But we look back on Genesis and see, even before there was sin, there's chaos to bring order to, and God brought order to it. And godless things will be chaotic. That's the natural state of things. And so every time you see anything ordered, when you see the good order of nature, when you see, for that matter, the food chain, you see the water cycle. Everything that you see in nature is order because God gave it order. The natural state of things was chaos i got to keep moving. There's more I wanted to say there. So we know that God is creative. He's sovereign over all things. The world's naturally chaotic. We shouldn't be expected. We should not be surprised when bad things happen. We look at the creation narrative and God's saying after each of these days, it's good, it's good, it's good. My separation of the firmament is what it's called in the in the land of the waters. It's good. It's good that these trees were made. It's good that there's fish and birds and animals it's good all the sun moon and stars it's all good telling us that we we don't go off the deep end like modern secularism into some kind of creation worship and environmentalism but we do look at the resources of the planet and want to steward them well god said the earth is good it gives us the the impetus to get off of our devices to get our faces out of screens and go see Go experience the good earth God made, to breathe the good air he made. God loves his creation. He says it's good. We read in those first 11 chapters, it is not good for man to be alone. And so in this atomized time that says to every human, you get to make your own reality, you get to make your own truth, anyone that would tell you your truth is wrong or your reality doesn't comport itself to objective reality. They're committing an act of violence against you for not affirming every thought and feeling you've got. You can be alone. You can be atomized. The the Bible early on says it's not good for man to be alone. And can't you witness that in the world around you now? The Western world says it is good for you to be alone. It's good for you not to have any kind of requirement or any kind of duty to your parents, to your family, to your community, to your spouse, You can live whatever your instincts say to live. You must live for you. In our consequences, we are swimming in SSRIs. We are swimming in our narcissism and depression and anxiety, and we're trying to treat it. Sometimes, listen, I'm not against treatment of those things, by the way. I'm saying that our abandonment of the idea that we're meant for each other, we're meant for community, has led for some people to be miserable. We know it's not good for man to be alone. Oh, I could continue, guys. I'm just in chapter two. At that point, there's the the Noah story, and there's the Tower of Babel story. There's some actually some weird stuff the sons of the sons of God mating with the, the the sons of man. You know, I just thought of one. Actually, I thought a lot more. I have written down. I'm gonna I'm going to choose one right now. Yeah, we'll choose that one. In the ancient world, there was the the idea of I think it's called. Pr- primogenture, primogenture, i don't know how to say it—but the idea of the firstborn gets a double portion. So, if there's five kids, you split up your stuff into six parts and give two parts to the firstborn. It's it's the way of uh, of of rule. The eldest is going to make sure that the family's taken care of. It's a it's a big responsibility. It's a how actually a lot of the world has run for a long time. But there was this theme in the scriptures of of God subverting man's wisdom and continuing to choose the lesser. Like the the animals were made first on day 6, but instead he gives dominion to the latecomer, Adam and Eve. Instead of choosing Cain or uh, wait. Yeah, instead of choosing Cain over Abel, the eldest, it's Abel over Cain. I believe when Noah gets off the boat, it's Shim that gets the blessing over the eldest. And that continues on past Genesis 11, that we see there is a God who values and uses peculiar thoughts, peculiar, peculiar systems, and even shines his face on the lesser. And don't we all need that? Because we're all the lesser. We're all looking to the firstborn of many brothers, Jesus above all. Guys, I'm telling you, as we read the Bible, chronologically, there's going to be a lot of good stuff. And every week... I, I want to bring out the, some of the actual time-related things, but this week it's just reflecting on the early part of Genesis and what it would tell us about who we are, who God is, what the problem is, and how we fix it. So I hope that is in some way helpful to you. We're going to take our first break. We're going to come back, and I'm going to answer a Bible question from a very good friend, Paul, who texted me with a Bible question. I want to take care of that. Uh, we'll talk about that Bills player who collapsed. We'll do a lot more. We'll do that and more when you come back for the rest of the Corey Act show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. I got one of my favorite type of texts from a good friend. I'm realizing I never actually responded to it in text, but I'm about to do it on the air And my favorite kind of text, well, one of my favorite types, is a Bible question. We're going to get into that one. It's a good one in just a moment. Welcome back to The Corey Truax Show, wherever you find podcasts and right here on his radio talk on Saturday mornings and Saturday evenings, 8 o'clock both times. I also have another email I want to get to from a listener, also a follower on Twitter. Speaking of, you can follow me on, well, you can friend me on Facebook. You can follow me on Instagram or Twitter. Look for my weird name, Corey Truax. You will find me there. You can also email the show at Corey, show at gmail.com. Corey, show at gmail.com. Would love to talk to you there. All right. Here's the text I got. Well, actually, let me first say, his name is Paul. Hi, Paul. You're the man. Paul, actually, is the reason I have a website, com. He got me to do it and then actually made it happen. So thanks, dude. All right. Paul says, what does this mean? And then sends me Matthew 520. Let me read it to you. Matthew 520, Jesus is teaching. This is the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Scary verse. With nothing else around it, here's what it means denotatively, if you know nothing else of what is said before or after or what's happening in that sermon. Jesus is saying, unless you're better than the best of the best, because the scribes and the Pharisees are mostly nailing it. Not only did they follow the 513, I think it is, Old Testament laws, they are writing laws about the laws. And so you got the fourth, wait, yeah, fourth commandment that says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. These dudes are writing laws that say, here's what it means to remember the Sabbath day. You can't walk this far, you can't do this kind of work, but you can do this kind of work. Like, they are writing laws on laws, and they are majoring on the minors when it comes to following the laws they write. These are good dudes. And so when you read the verse... Unless your righteousness exceeds the people writing and keeping the laws, you're never going to the kingdom of heaven. Thankfully, this is a good exercise in learning how to do some Bible study. Because too, way too often, your version Bible app plans and stuff will give you one verse out of context, and what if one day that verse is Matthew 5:20 and you op- you open up the day and go, "All right, let's read a verse and see what the U version app has for me." All right, well, unless I'm super righteous, I'm just going to miss everything. That's a good depressing way to start the day. So this is a good opportunity to figure out what a verse means when out of context it just seems like it can't be right. So in the here's your first step. First step in figuring out what a verse means. Go read the paragraph even in most King James versions, and certainly on all the online versions, they do a very good job of breaking it up into paragraphs. So if you read the entire paragraph, you're almost immediately going to figure out what it means in context. So in context, here's what Jesus is saying in that paragraph. Some of you are thinking, I'm, I'm not quoting right now, by the way. I'm doing it my version, so don't get mad at me. In the paragraph, Jesus is saying, some of you have, are thinking that I've come to abolish the law. I'm telling you the law of Moses is done. I'm abolishing it. I'm not telling you that, though. I'm telling you that not an iota, not a jot. I think there's the word tittle in there somewhere. None of it is being abolished. Don't relax the law. I haven't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it, meaning I came to keep all of the laws. I came to keep the right motive for doing all of the laws. So don't think I've done away with it. And and additional to that, you you better know that unless you keep the law even better than the scribes and the Pharisees, yeah, you won't see the kingdom of heaven. We go. I don't know if that encourages me much anyway anymore in that paragraph. I mean, he's telling me, and like he's going to fulfill the law, he's going to keep it perfectly. But how does that help me? Oh man, if you keep reading more of the sermon, by the way, because it's in the This verse is in the middle of a sermon, and he starts to expound on that. He says, again, not quoting, so don't get mad at me. I'm paraphrasing. He says things like, oh, you've heard murder's bad. If you hate your brother, you've already committed murder. Oh, you've heard committing adultery is bad. If you're looking with lust, you've already committed adultery. And then he continues on, let's talk about what you've done with divorce and oaths and keeping your promises and loving your enemies. So, What is all of this supposed to lead us to? I don't get the kingdom of heaven unless I've kept the law perfectly even better than the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's that the Pharisees and the scribes, and they haven't even kept it perfectly. I am helpless. What am I going to do? That's exactly the point. What does it mean that you won't get the kingdom of God without being more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees? It means exactly that. You won't. So then it leaves you helpless, broken down with a question. Then how do I get that righteousness? Well, I have good news. Jesus came to fulfill the law. He came to live the life you can't live. And he offers to us, by grace, by his goodness, through faith that we place on him, by his grace we're placing that faith, not of our own goodness, we get what some scholar i can't remember who first said it we get the great exchange that on the cross what we could not do all of our sins is placed on him and instead of walking away with our filthy rags we get his righteous robe jesus is doing a credible job in that in that sermon on the mount and that verse and the verses surrounding it getting you to the end of yourself getting you to the spot where you'll say i can't do it I can't keep the law. Good. Now you're finally figuring it out. And when you can't keep the law, you lean on Him, and you you get to use your, His righteousness instead of yours. So that's it. Good question, Paul. What is uh, and it's also a good exercise for us. When you get confused by a verse, start reading the paragraph if, until the paragraph doesn't make sense. Read the chapter. Read the chapter before or chapter after. And then if you get super stuck, you can just email a podcaster. I'm just kidding. You should always ask your local pastor. Whoever the pastor of your local church is, that's who you should ask. And if you need to use me, that's cool, too. Uh, if you want to email Show at gmail.com, Show at gmail.com. This is going to be a hard left turn on content or topic. But actually, you know what? I'm a semi-professional. Let's see if I can segue this. You know... Speaking of situations where you need to get more context before making claims and making sure you have your full understanding with context, speaking of those situations, I have some thoughts on this Buffalo Bills safety, who you've probably seen the video from, on what seemingly looked like a routine tackle on a former Clemson wide receiver, T. Higgins. This safety, T. Higgins collides pretty F- fiercely, I mean, with a full, about full speed, the player's chest, the player stands up, he's probably standing for a couple seconds and then totally collapses, and we find it's a terribly scary situation. He goes into cardiac arrest, the paramedic should be commended for keeping his heart going on the field, he's there for like 20 minutes for an ambulance can get him to a hospital, and at least as of right now, this is always risky in pre-recording a show, but as of right now, he is stable and seemingly starting to be a little bit better. That's, those are the facts of the case. You know, I like to give you the facts and then commentary. And not even really talk about the thing, right? the The person is the player who got hurt. The event is his medical emergency. But fairly soon after it happened, some ideas started to surface that I want to interact with and I want to interact with them carefully and graciously. Fairly soon after, on Twitter, there were some el- there's some elements on the right who are s- vaccine-skeptical. They are skeptical of the COVID vaccines. I think probably skeptical of all of them. The Johnson & Johnson, the Pfizer version, the, the other one is Moderna, and probably, I would imagine, skeptical of the ones that Asian and European countries have come up with as well, and their companies that are vaccine-skeptical, started trying to link the event of what happened with the safety to covid vaccines now of course from the start it's it's a fairly irresponsible thing to do in that one you don't even know if the, the guy's been vaccinated one you you don't even account for the idea that it it could be something else and we're finding that there is there are uh, very plausible other good explanations even a recurring thing in athletes when it comes to collisions with the chest cavity, collisions with the heart, knocking it out of rhythm. We have other examples of this. I know one of the things I kept seeing, I, I want to go ahead and interact with an argument. One of the things I kept seeing is hey, well we have this clinical data, we have uh, of this many hundred uh, healthy people having heart issues after getting the COVID, uh, the COVID vaccine I, I would at least argue back, as many of the as those as you have, this other option of this collision. It's it's about similar. It it could be similar odds. And I don't even necessarily really want to argue the point with you. I don't. I don't think I'm going to talk anybody out of vaccine skepticism. And I mean, I've I've done, guys. I've I've done what you've done. I did the went over to Rumbler and watched the died suddenly thing, or almost all of it. I tend to be a statistician, and I I understand. I mean, there's even some European um, European countries that are even now recommending that young men don't get some of these vaccines because there might be more of a risk of getting it than of getting COVID itself. And I, I know a lot of what you know. I'm sure a lot of you have done more work on the on the vaccine stuff than I have. I just again, I just tend to be a statistician, and this because the statistics tell me not to be super scared of COVID statistically. I'm not scared of the of young men I'm, of getting vaccinated. I haven't been, but it's not not has nothing to do with any kind of fear or skepticism that's going to cause me any kind of heart problem. Right? Just statistically, I understand anecdote, and I understand. Like, let's let's say this Bills player is vaccinated. There's an anecdote here, but my point here is correlation isn't causation, and I want people associated with my ideology to be more careful because. You folks who are vaccine skeptical, you are more so closely associated with rightism, with being right of center, for being skeptical of governments and wanting limited government, and limited power. I I know you're you're sort of associated with me, and so I, I'm never going to yell you or shame you into agreeing with me. I found out through my 2015-16 primary season, I can't yell people and shame people into agreeing with me. And so I want to gently, carefully, just see if I can get you to stop making the argument. Not to stop thinking what you're thinking, because I don't think I can do that. I think you've made your conclusions, and I've made mine. But I wonder if I can get you to stop using this event to argue something that you've thought prior. It's a, a phenomenon in, in humans. It's called confirming your priors. Where the thing that you thought already, that if you if you can interpret an event to, uh, to bolster your case, you will. I'll give you an example of how I don't do this. I try not to be a person who can have my priors confirmed. The one I'm about to give you is frivolous, but it's at least a decent example. Uh, six, seven, eight years ago now, it was discovered that there might have been some deflated footballs used in a New England Patriots game, and that Tom Brady, a guy that I cannot stand and argue vociferously against being the best quarterback who ever played that he might have something to do with it that there might be some cheating going on and there's been some cheating you know uh, claims about the patriots in the past and so that scandal confirmed all my priors everything in my my flesh my nature it want I wanted it to be true I wanted Tom Brady to be a cheater I wanted deflated footballs to be a big a big deal but the data, the information, the investigation in front of me went, that's just not true. I want it to be. But my even my initial reaction was, I want this to be true. And even be, because of that, because I want it to be true, I want to be really careful before I just decide to believe it. I want to do a lot of work because this just confirms my priors. And I'm asking you to do the same thing. Even if you think you've got a great case otherwise, this is not, this Bill's thing, it's not part of your case. And I think it's irresponsible. I think it's a... I'll use the. I'll, I'll, I'll stop there. I think it's irresponsible to use it, and I wonder if I can convince you even this way. The people that you most dislike and disagree with—they do this. It's a lazy way to think. You know how every uh, every event that could possibly be racially motivated, the folks on the left just jump on. They have no data. They have no information. They've done no investigation, but because their prior understanding is that America is a racist hellscape. Any event they can use to bolster or confirm their prior assumption, they just use it. I'll just take you to a few obvious ones. J- uh, Jesse Smollett's story in 2020 was insane from the beginning. It was obviously fake from the beginning and had no credibility, but the left just jumped on and said it absolutely happened. And now they all look ridiculous because the investigation has showed, of course it never happened. It was always insane. the The Bubba Wallace thing in 2020 and with NASCAR, that there was a noose in his garage, and we just find very quickly there's been pictures of that same garage for years. It's a it's a thing on a on a it's a string a rope to pull down the garage. I recently had to rent a U-Haul. You know what was tied to the door so I could pull it down? A rope. If you tie it in a circle, you guess you could try to make it look like a noose. And after the investigation, we knew it we knew it wasn't any kind of racist act. But the left just jumped on it. Absolutely is we got got uh, Sandman, I think his name is Alex Sandman, the guy who sued CNN and got like $40 million because he was standing with a smirk on his face while some native was yelling in his face in a Washington, D.C. March for Life rally. It confirmed the prior of the of the person on the left. They, they know that the country is a racist hellscape, and so they just know this kid was doing something racist. But in the, when we did the work, we found out it's not true. So I am asking you, don't do what they did. They see some kind of event. They have assumed they're right about some part of the world, and so they just jump on it and say, and they just run with it. Don't do that. It's it's lazy, and it's irresponsible to do that. If you think you can have a case, make it responsibly. Make Bolster your case with data. This is not part of your case yet. You do not have the authority. You don't have the information to make this part of your case. Don't make their mistake. One other thing I would just ask you humbly not to do. I don't want to associate you with like 911 truthers and you know 911 was an inside job or the I don't want to, I don't want to turn turn people who are vaccine skeptical into like a, I don't know the, the shooting in Connecticut with those kids was fake. I don't want to do that to you. but I am asking you to question when your tactics, Align with their tactics. It's always gotten on my nerves that the tactics of many conspiracy theory types is well. I'm just asking questions. No, you're not. Your question is a claim. When you ask the question, could this be related to the COVID-19 vaccine? You're you're telling us that's exactly what you think, and you don't have the evidence to say so yet. So, can I just ask you? Don't use the tactic that we're just asking questions. You don't have if you don't have evidence. I know, I've heard some folks that are like this. They argue, well, the evidence will be concealed from us anyway. No one will ever tell the truth about this. Okay. And if that's the case, still you can't argue because you don't have the evidence. You can complain that you'll never have it, but you you can't actually build your argument on lack of evidence. Just If you could, don't do the just asking questions thing. I think that's a little dishonest too. Build whatever case you can, and if you find your case still to be wanting, but you still believe the thing that you want to believe and then say, you know, the evidence I need is being concealed, it's being hidden, fine, cool, whatever, I am just telling you it's irresponsible to use this Buffalo Bills player to make your point about vaccines, and the just asking questions tactic is a little dishonest, and I'm going to call it a little immature, but I, and then I'll just come back around to this, I, I know I will never be shamed into changing my mind. I will only ever be convinced. And so I don't want to shame you into changing your mind. But I hope I can convince you over time, or maybe the data will change and you'll convince me. But in terms of argumentation, and how you structure your thoughts, that's just a challenge to you when it comes to talking about this Bills player. When we return, I want to read to you some advice the New York Times gave out for the new year. We will examine some of those when you come back for the rest of the court. And by the way, when we examine them, I'm going to roast them, mostly. We'll do that when you come back for the rest of The Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. I know for many of you, your least favorite quality of mine is I regularly read The New York Times. I even give them subscription money Because they do a lot of good journalism. I know they do a lot of bad journalism, but a lot of it's great. And we're going to use some of that right now. Welcome to the Corey Truax Show on His Radio Talk. And wherever you find podcasts, find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Look for my weird name, Corey Truax. You can also give feedback to the show at Show at gmail.com. Show at gmail.com. Some of you might say, I think you're just stretching for material. And so you thought this would be an easy layup of content. And you... (laughs) Might be right. I also don't want to ever waste your time, so I think this will be useful, but it'll take us through the next 10 minutes or so. Uh, The New York Times asked people, uh, what's your best advice that you received in 2022? And they were supposed to be putting this out as advice for you to take in the new year. As I look through it, there actually is some good stuff. There's also some dumb stuff. So let's see what a mostly godless worldview will produce in advice for the new year, and we'll interact with each idea as we go. Number one came from Mary from Florida. She wrote, In your closet and your life, subtract whenever you add. Okay, pretty good. There's a uh, there's an idea in one of the transcendentalists. I think it was Thoreau. He just wrote, Simplify, simplify, simplify. You can go to Bible here. Godliness with contentment is great gain. There's the G.K. Chesterton quote. That is, There are two ways to have enough. One is to get more. The other is to want less. So I... On your closet, I highly agree with that. I failed to do it. I'm realizing now that I get to share a home with my wonderful wife. I need to get rid of some stuff. I've just been collecting clothes for too long. It's a good idea. when In your closet, when you get something new, get rid of something. Now, in your life, I don't know. I don't know if that's good uh, advice or not from Mary. But it's very good closet advice and very good chest of drawers advice. Get rid of stuff when you get something new. Two comes from Rory in Ohio. She says, you don't have to identify with your feelings. This is probably the best one. I can't believe the New York Times even published that advice. Like We have become such an atomized, individualized group that we tend to think we are our feelings. Whatever emotions we're having at the time, that is exactly who we are. We, we need a, a rekindling of the idea that emotions are fickle. They come and go. They aren't the core of who you are. And just because you're having a feeling doesn't mean you have to identify with it. You can compartmentalize it for a while. You can come back and examine, examine the feeling. Uh, we definitely live in a time that is much too obsessed with our emotions. They're good. Emotions are God-given. They're information that's I I don't want to denigrate that. There was a time in my life I would denigrate that. I would hear someone saying, yeah, you don't have to identify with your feelings and I would just firebrand that and say, yeah, get over yourself, get over your feelings. I'm not saying that, but in this age when we're obsessed with feelings, it's a good word from the New York Times even to say just because you're having it doesn't mean you have to identify with it. Third, uh, is also from Ohio. It's from Rose. She says, everyone is going through something. Okay. Yeah, I get that. That's, it's kind of a word about patience, like the the person who is driving in a way that is annoying you or is doing something annoying in the grocery line before you. Uh, you're getting annoyed by the world and you want to lash out. Someone at work is being lazy. Someone has been mean to you. Remember, everybody's going through something and give them some extra grace. Give them some extra, uh, some extra patience. There is... There is some line you got to draw, some boundary you got to draw, where just because someone's going through something, they don't get to be terrible. They don't get to be lazy. They don't get to give up on their uh, their responsibilities. But, yes, it is good for our patience, for people to recognize. The person I'm dealing with that's kind of being unpleasant, they probably are going through something, and so I'm going to have a little more patience. Uh, from Lene in Michigan, she wrote in to say, If there is an issue bothering me, I think to myself, will this be an issue in one week or in one month? If the answer is no, I, I recognize it as a small problem and let it go and move on. Man, this is some great advice. I thought I was going to roast these more. If you are upset about something, something has caused your temper to flare, you're annoyed, if you'll stop and go, in one week, will there be consequence of this? One month, will there be a consequence to whatever I'm feeling? If the answer is no, then do that compartmentalization thing and go, all right, I got to move on. I'm an adult, I got stuff to do. And just put it away. That's great advice from the New York Times. If it's not going to matter a week or a month from now, stop stressing about it and put it away. Tom from North Carolina wrote in to say, if you didn't have to keep working, would you? I don't know how that's advice. I think that's more of a philosophical question. Um, And for Christian worldview purposes, biblical worldview purposes, uh, we're made to work. Even if you have all the money in the world, you never need anything else. Yes, we would still keep working because we cultivate. Maybe I wouldn't be working the current job or your current job that you have, but yeah, we're always going to work because we're made to do it. We're not made to sit around and do nothing. We will be dissatisfied by it. I This one I couldn't stand. From Julie in New York City. She wrote in to say, here's the best marriage advice. Binge shows in separate rooms. Heck no, that's all the fun. She had uh, a... My wife and I just binged, not binged, because I don't believe in binge-watching. I think it's terrible to never binge-watch. But over a period of a few weeks, we watched the two seasons of Ted Lasso. The fun of it was doing it together and then getting to talk about it. The fun of watching some of the old sitcoms together is being able to talk about it and react to it together. So, no, that's terrible advice from the New York Times. Don't binge shows in separate rooms. Uh, from Cassia in New York, she says, oh, I love this one. When the wrench is on the nut, tighten it. And what she means by that is, if you are already, if, if, if you've already touched that form that needs to fill, be filled out, just do it. If you're on that website where you need to uh, s- submit this document, just do it. If you're sitting at your computer and the Word document is open for you to create the, the, to write the letter you need to, to, uh, to apply for that job, whatever it is, just do it, you're sitting there, just do it. Don't put things off very good advice at a time where again we get we, we're easily distracted we're in we have trained our brains through because of our phones and devices not to focus on anything too long that that's great advice if you are close to it if you're already on it just do it if you have started unloading the dishwasher finish it just do the thing that you're that you're working on a few more of these from North Carolina Robin writes the best way to make a decision ask yourself does it light me up? That is one of the dumbest pieces of advice you could ever give somebody. You know what actually doesn't light me up? Getting up at 5.30 to go to the gym. Now, if I can think about it more deeply and think about my heart health, think about my body mass index, think about how one of the great things about fitness is how independent you are, that I'm not dependent on any given drug or doctor or anything else. That's those. Those are good things, but it doesn't light me up to get up and go to work. It doesn't light me up to do any a, a lot of our good habits. Actually, the <laughs> the question to when it, uh, best way to make a decision is: Is it the right thing? Is it the biblical thing? And if those th- two things aren't super clear, still one of the worst metrics is: Does it light me up? Does it make me happy? Those are fleeting feelings and consequences. Like make decisions based on longitudinal data and information over time how it's going to affect you. The one question you should not ask yourself when making a decision is, does it light me up? That is terrible advice. I think I have three more. Uh, From San Diego, Hudson writes, I like to remind myself that my track record for getting through bad days is 100%, and that's pretty good. Especially if you are going through something. like I've been through those seasons where every day really is hard. Some of you are in that season right now, and if you're not in one, another one's coming. It actually is a good practice to remind yourself I got through the last one, and especially if you're a believer, and that's the vast majority of my listenership. The Lord got me through the last one. He has been faithful to get me through everything I've faced thus far. He will be faithful again. It's a 100% track record, not for me, but in the faithfulness of my God to get me through whatever is is coming and whatever's happened. So I would, you know, put some, I'd spiritualize what Hudson wrote there, but it's a good reminder if you're going through something rough. From Katya in Portland, she says, "Stop reaching for people who aren't reaching back." Eh, some context. Uh, like I, I've seen this a lot in the dating advice part of TikTok, the dating advice, part of Instagram and the, the pop culture, is that if someone's not reaching for you, don't reach for them. right? The people will tell you who they are by how they behave, and if, if they want, it's one of my least favorite phrases on the internet. If they wanted to, they would. If they wanted to do it, they would do it. That is so false. Like some of us just have priorities and not just priorities, that's not a better word, have obligations. There's a lot of stuff I want to do for people. I can't. I run out of minutes. I run out of hours. So the to say this straight up, if someone's not reaching for you, d- then don't reach for them. I Means especially from a Christian perspective, I'm not not necessarily talking about romantic relationships here, but some of the people who aren't reaching for you can't. They're so deep under the the cares of this world. There's they're so deep in their own uh, their own depression, their own problems. They can't reach for anybody. They can't even reach for help. They actually do need us to reach for them. This idea of, of never being the first one to love is destructive. We, we love him because he first loved us. We weren't reaching for him. He reached for us. That's the biblical idea here. And so as we are now modeling after the image of God... There's a whole bunch of people who need to be reached for. They're not going to reach for anybody and out of our own risk. Yes, it's a risk to us. I think it's C.S. Lewis that said, you know, t- to love it all is to be vulnerable. You have, the t- you have the option. You can put your heart out there to try to help somebody and you can get hurt. Or you can put your heart away in a very cold, dark, dank place and it will shrink into nothingness and shrivel. The idea that we don't reach for people who aren't reaching for us, that definitely needs some some nuance. There is certainly in romantic, uh, let's go entanglements, certain relationships, not in marriage, by the way. In marriage, you're in for the long haul, you, you figure it out. Uh, but like, yeah, in early dating relationships, if, if someone's just not putting in a lot of effort and you are, yeah, sure. Stop reaching for that person if they're not reaching for you. But as a general ethic for the Christian, we reach out for those who are not reaching because often they don't have the strength to reach, they don't have the power to reach, and it's going to be up to us to initiate. Final one comes from Patty in Oregon. She wrote in to say, "Be where your feet are." Yeah, it's good advice. It's one of my it's one of the hardest things for me. Something I've been working on. Marriage has been for me one of the more refining, uh, uh, refining principle uh, instruments God has used in this. I'm almost never where I am. I am always tomorrow in my mind. I'm always the to-do list. I, I'm not asking you to feel sorry for me, but I, to give you an idea, if I am in my house, and there is any chore that I know needs to be done, that there is a load of laundry that needs to go in or could be folded or could be put away, if there's a thing in the dish, if there's a thing in the sink, and I just know there is. I'm not even looking at it. I'm in the living room, but I know it's there. If I know. There is some meal prep that could be getting done. If I could be, there's there's bumpers, that's what the music that comes in, uh, that separates the segments for the for the podcast or the radio show, that could be uh, recorded in advance so that when it's time for me to record the show, I can just come up and do it. My mind is always doing that. There is sermons I'm going to preach in February. I'm preaching the month of February at Beachwood, the Lord willing. There's always prep that could be done, and my mind is always running to those things. And it can be miserable. I'm not asking you to feel sorry for me, but that's it can be a miserable way to live, to be always running to the next thing in your head. It is a good, a good blessing, I think this is in part what Sabbath is, to stop thinking I run the world. Sabbath is in part a call to us to say, Hey you can be where you are. The world doesn't depend on you. You have a good father, he, he's going to take care of you. You don't have to take you don't have to take care of everything the moment you think it has to get taken care of. You're fine. You can rest. The tasks will be there. You can be present right here in the moment where you are. There's some good advice, there's some bad advice from this New York Times list to start 2023. Uh, we can always filter it through the biblical lens, and I hope I'll be doing that for you all year long. I'll be back with another new edition of The Cory Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts next week. Until then, peace and love.